Hello everybody, my name's Martin Kinnan and I'm an ancient infection control practitioner from the UK and welcome to Infection Control Matters. Professor Brett Mitchell here from uh, University of Newcastle in Australia. And uh, today we're joined by a very special guest uh, and a good friend of ours as well, uh, Dr. Stephanie Dancer. And I'll introduce uh, Stephanie. Stephanie um, is a consultant microbiologist at NHS Lancashire and a professor of microbiology at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. She edited for the Journal of Hospital Infection for 20 years and many of them, I think it was five, as, as editor-in-chief. She also edits for a number of other journals, including one in which I'm involved with. Uh, Dr. Dancer is currently a member of the European Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases Groups on Infection Control, MRSA, Multi-Resistant Gram-Negative Bacilli, and she is part of the NHS Scotland's Cleaning and Decontamination Committee. Stephanie's interests include hospital cleaning, antimicrobial management, and hospital-acquired infection. And today, we're very pleased to have Stephanie join us um, because Stephanie, along with her colleagues, recently published a paper in the Journal of Hospital Infection called Dismantling the Myths of Airborne Transmission of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome COVID-2, so SARS-CoV-2. And today we get the opportunity to talk to Stephanie a little bit about uh, this paper and some other things behind the scenes. So a warm welcome to you, Stephanie. Thanks very much, Brett. Nice to see you again, albeit over a very long distance. And uh, Martin, a wee bit closer. I was very surprised, but indeed pleased when you said you wanted to ask a few questions and hear about the inside information underpinning our, our Mythbuster paper. And that's actually what we called it. The MythBuster paper, and uh, I know you've got some some questions to ask me about it. So perhaps you'd like to um, start off with with whatever you want to start with, and I'll tell you all about it. Well, I'll kick off then, Stephanie. I mean, I'd love this paper, but I have to say, when I went through it, I'm thinking, well, actually, at the beginning of the year, I was saying that, and I was saying that, and I was saying that. So. How many of these things actually changed your mind over the course of the year? Because, you know, certainly, for example, I was saying the R0 is at such a rate that it's not like measles. And, you know, the, the paper it, it really explains why that, that probably isn't the case. So, you know, were there any of these that you were um, suspicious of at the beginning? <laughs> no. <laughs> we, um, there was a group of us, there's about 36 of us across the world aerosol scientists, physicists, there was a chemist, ventilation engineers, a virologist. I think there were just three clinicians in the group. And we we just all came together. It, it just gelled around about the time of the first lockdown in the UK. So that must have been about second week of March. Um, and I was already um, convinced. I, I was already pretty convinced that there, there was aerosol spread going on here and that the droplet story and the fomites, how I hate that word, um, was perhaps of secondary importance. Although I have to admit that the very first publication that I went for was about cleaning. Um, uh, something like, you know, remember Florence Nightingale, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what can we do in the community about surface virus uh, and so on? I suppose I felt it was actually my duty to do that, given that I've had such a long history um, working on hospital cleaning. But even whilst I was writing that paper, there were big question marks over it. I was thinking, this, there's something else going on here. This is not just about um, droplet fomite spread. Um, this is aerosol spread. And I think it might have had something to do with the fact that I wrote a historical review about sunlight and ventilation in 2012 with a completely mad Welsh engineer called, called Richard Hobday, who, who stalked me for several years with this book 
that he'd written about aerosol spread saying, we've got so much work to do um, for, for viruses and, and aerosol spread. We've really got to sort out the ventilation in hospitals. And he'd written a book. He'd been to um, libraries um, because he couldn't get stuff online to have a look at TB transmission two centuries ago and so on. And I took this book away with me on holiday, read it, and that was it. And so much in what he'd written is relevant now towards this pandemic. So by the time the group of 36 came after me and said, please join our group, we need to advertise the fact that this virus is being spread by short range aerosol. Um, I didn't need any convincing whatsoever. And the myths that we came up with, I have to say we came up with quite a lot of myths. These were the prime ones that we chose for the paper. And it kicked off in, I think it must've been about June time because the New York Times published something saying the reason why the one meter where you mustn't go close to, to anybody within one meter is because the coronavirus is heavier, okay, than the other respiratory viruses and it falls within the one meter. It's got a big genome and it's heavier. And this was in the New York Times and I think it must have been about late June or something like that. So you can imagine this group of international experts on, on aerosol, they've been working on it on year, for years. The, the, the emails flying around the world, I'm, I'm surprised that we didn't ignite um, the, the world's media with, with some of our comments going around. And that's when somebody came up with the idea, why don't we debunk the myths around the way this virus is behaving and the way we think this virus is spreading? And so it was 150 emails a day flying around the world, 36 people, the USA, Estonia, Denmark, Australia. I have to say the lady who led us and who shaped us and, and pushed us in the right direction was a fantastic lady called Professor Lydia Maruska, who's, um, um, I think she's the heads up your International Institute of Clean Air and Health in Brisbane. And it was she that kept us on track because of so many experts here and so much passion flying around, which you, would, which you would expect, given what was going on last year, with the way the pandemic took the world by storm. Um, and uh, the Mythbuster paper came about as a, as a gelling, if you like, of, of all the things that we'd seen, which drove us totally mad. For example, in Pennsylvania, the church organists were, were told not to play at volume because of the air coming out of the organ might, might actually contribute to more infection in, amongst the congregation. There was, there was that. And then there was a statement in the New England Journal of Medicine, something about, um, we know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities has, um, offers little, if any, protection to anyone. So, so statements appearing in international documents, um, in national bodies, um, quoted by government, we had our own bloopers from the from uh, um, the UK government as well, and I think it was that which which focused us on this. Let's try and blow apart these myths, which we defined as as um, a widely held but but false belief or idea. And I think we defined it in the paper something like that. Um, let's try and and debunk the myths surrounding the spread of this virus because. We don't want to see any more people getting it and any more people suffering. That, that was the idea. And the academic institution behind all this were, uh, to say frustrated, I think, is, is, is a, was, was a very understated um, 
description because they had no there, there was there was no clinical um, lead other than the three of us within the group who were clinicians. They felt so frustrated about not being able to get the basic physics and aerosol science evidence through to the public health bodies. I think was that and, and the passion coming through these folk who unselfishly and worked so hard to to put all their ideas down, sharing it amongst all of us to be able to to, to put this this piece together. There was a bit of reluctance, though, from infection prevention people to accept that air really was an issue, wasn't it? And, you know, we, we weren't listening to the people who have specialist expertise in this area. Now, everybody in the UK knows Kath Noakes, but we hadn't heard of her for a year ago. Yes, that's right. Well, of course, she's, she's um, a very rare individual. She's um, a specialist ventilation engineer in healthcare. And she'd already published a paper saying if you open the windows, people are less likely to get infections. She'd already done that. And I, I, I'd use that in some of my conference presentations. That's absolutely right. No, it's this fixation. You're quite right. It was, it was almost as if there was um, um, a huge barrier between the academics and the healthcare professionals, and particularly the infection control folk. Uh, it, it's, it's this fixation on droplet spread, droplet precautions, which take us back over 100 years to miasmas and things like this, because there's this like, right, well, that's an aerosol and that's a droplet, and that disease is a droplet, so you have to do that in the hospital, and that's an aerosol, and you have to do that, and there are only, if it's, it, it can only be aerosol if it's long-range spread and that sort of thing. This, this is all, you've got to just shut the door on that. There've, there's been so little work done on the transmission of viruses on, on, uh, by aerosol means, simply because what happened last century? We got vaccines and we got antibiotics, we got antivirals, et cetera, et cetera. I've said for ages that the 20th century was, was the century for antibiotics um, and antimicrobials, but now this century, is essentially for transmission, preventing transmission, because we're running out of antimicrobials. We need to stop people getting the infections. Um, and along comes a massive, great big outbreak, a pandemic of a virus, tiny little piece of RNA that's brought the world to its knees. So this fixation on droplet spread, I think it's it, it's come from the TB, like well, more than 100 years ago. Um, and what a surprise. It just reminds me of cleaning when... So some of us said 20, 25 years ago that the hospital environment was important, that we need to sort out hospital cleaning, which was being like reduced and reduced and reduced because there was no evidence to support it. And now everyone's talking about the environment. That, that's what's going to happen to aerosol science. And that's what I really want to happen. I certainly hope so too, Stephanie. I think, I think your point is well made. In infection prevention control, we really have had a lack of evidence for forming a whole range of things for a number of years, and perhaps this uh, pandemic will help shine a light, not only on that, but enable us to do some of the critical work we need to do in research and clinical-based research to uh, to answer some of these questions and, and improve the way in which we do things. Uh, a, a question, I, I mean, one of my questions was going to be, how did you, um, how did this paper come about? But I think you've done a great job talking to us about that. And for those who are listening, who haven't read the paper yet, I absolutely um, encourage you to do so. The paper contains six myths, or seven if you include five A and B. Um, so before I get to my sort of controversial couple of questions for you, Stephanie, just, just I wondered, so you mentioned that there was a number of myths and you, you uh, managed to narrow this down. Do you have a particular favourite one 
that uh, really irritates you, or you think if if just take take one or two take one or two of these, and we can go a long way. Well, my one one of the myths was was actually my contribution, and and that was um, unless it grows in tissue culture, it's completely dead and therefore non-infectious. That was my contribution, and I think that came from me because I I was the only microbiologist on the group. Um, and I'm well used to things not growing on agar plates. Patients have a sniff of an antibiotic. You know they've got a rip-roaring infection. Next day, you look at the agar plate, there's nothing there. And But that doesn't mean to say that the organism isn't there. It doesn't mean to say that there isn't an infection. So this was one particular myth that I felt really strongly about. And the others did too. So that, that was incorporated. Um, people say um, that don't believe in the aerosol spread. They say, well, um, look at all the people that have done sampling. Um, and they can never find it. And if they do find it, it it's only like 18% of the 500 specimens that they took. And there's so much to say about that, particularly the air sampling, because air sampling is really destructive. Um, I think I saw a paper the other day about a new method of air sampling, and I'm, I need to go and explore that because that looked really, cyclone sampling or something, I think that looked really interesting. And I wonder whether that creates the same turbulence at the air-liquid interface where you draw the air in to capture the virus. This, this, this virus has got um, an envelope. It's an envelope virus, which is really fragile. Therefore, sampling it is really difficult. You've got to have loads of it to be able to pick it up and say it's there. But then, of course, when you do show it's there, particularly if you're doing PCR-based molecular methods, doesn't mean to say it's alive. You've actually then got to inoculate it into tissue culture. And therein is the next problem, because if you look at flu, you need at least 300 um, copies of the virus to be able to produce some effect CPE on the tissue culture. Um, what the, the cutoff is for this virus, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows just yet. But certainly <laughs> one virus that you've picked up from the air or from a surface and inoculated into tissue culture is not going to grow. Doesn't mean to say it's not there. Doesn't mean to say it's not infectious. So um, we got around that by talking about the precautionary principle, which I think everybody knows about. And that is just because we can't see it, it doesn't mean to say it's not there. If you like, we need to take the precautions. And uh, but I, and I, if I carry on this way and say, well, there's actually no evidence whatsoever for any of the potential three modes of spread, whether it's fomites, whether it's droplets, whether it's aerosol, no one has yet captured this virus, genotyped it from a particular reservoir, and then genotyped it from an infected person linked in time and space, because that's what we need. Um, and if you talk about, well, what do we need for evidence? And you start talking to me about Cochrane reviews, we really aren't going to get anywhere because um, randomized controlled trials on, on, on this virus are going to be a very, very, very long way away. But saying that, I think the evidence is mounting for aerosol spread. And I think the super spreading events, you want to talk to me about that, we can talk about that. The fact that asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, people are not sneezing or coughing, and yet they're transmitting it. Um, that's clearly aerosol spread. I think that you're transmitting it inside, but not outside. That indicates um, aerosol spread. So, uh, and, and a few other things as well. For example, there have been two or three papers where folk have managed to collect it from air in hospitals, and not necessarily in COVID areas either but outside and, and, on, and from surfaces outside areas where COVID patients are. So I think the evidence is mounting, but we've got a long way to go. And if this 
paper does anything apart from bridging the gap between the academics and the clinicians, particularly the infection control folk, I hope very much that it also does something else and that's accelerate work in aerosol science because that's what we're going to need this century. Now, you mentioned early on that there were a couple of things that didn't make it into the paper that were close and you had to make choices. So what were a couple of the myths that didn't actually make it into the paper? There were loads, Martin, loads and loads and loads. Ah, oh, I should have gone through all the... <laughs> I didn't fancy going through about a thousand emails to try and find out all the myths that we discarded on the way. And they were all doctored, if you like. We, we had to agree on each statement and pick out the ones that we really wanted. Um, oh, yes, I remember one about droplet nuclei. Yeah, myth. Viruses do not survive in droplet nuclei because there is no water. That's rubbish. Most envelope viruses survive very well when desiccated, even when you try to inactivate them at high temperatures. So, so that was one that, that we discarded for various reasons. Um, oh, there were some more. But some of them were so crazy that we, we, we wanted to keep the article, at least in the realms of professional academia rather than people laughing at us. Something about musical instruments, which we discarded as well. Um, keep talking. I'll try and think of any more. One of the things in, a, in Australia that we saw a lot of and how it just infuriated me was this sort of fogging of the air um, in, in so-called deep clean um, every time and, and, and things being shut for days to, to clean an, an area where possibly we could have opened some windows up. Did you, did you think about um, that sort of fogging type um, evidence when, or myth when you were um, when you were writing the paper? We, uh, well, because it's my area, um, I, I would have loved to have put in something about um, spraying the streets with disinfectant wasn't actually going to have any impact whatsoever on, on the spread of the, of the virus out in the community. But the, the others were not keen. And in actual fact, I think I only mentioned it once because it felt to me that we needed to to focus on the aerosol side of things because we didn't want to dilute the message too much. We wanted the most important message of all was short range aerosol. This is how the virus is being spread. When you breathe, by the way, that's an aerosol generating procedure. When you breathe, okay, you are breathing out, not necessarily respiratory particles, which could be termed droplets, i.e. more than hundred microns. You're, you're actually more likely to be breathing out trillions and trillions of tiny particles which are less than five microns and these tiny aerosol they actually carry more they host more virus than the bigger droplets do lovely work done by by some of the members of the group showing that um, and the the overriding message was there's a continuum when you speak when you laugh when you sing when you shout sneeze cough etc there's a continuum of larger respiratory particles, i.e. the so-called droplets, which I, we all think is over 100 microns, so the big ones that fall to the ground like ballistic cannonballs, but much more so are these tiny, a whole range of sizes, but mostly these tiny, tiny aerosols, which you cannot see. You can, you can analogize it to cigarette smoke, which I think we might have mentioned in the article. And um, Julian was very keen, Julian Tang, who was our first author, he was very keen to put in something about um, curry smells, garlic and alcohol. I think we took the curry out, but we left the alcohol and the garlic in. Because if you can smell what somebody's had for lunch, you're close enough to inhale their aerosol. That was the point we were making. Not that 
there's there's no chemical rationale for that because these are these tiny little chemical signals from the from the foods and drinks that you take. Actually, that was a They're really good point. But it that is was the point such a is, good point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really when you when you're teaching people, you can when you say that, you can see their eyes go, "Oh yes, they get it." That was such a nicely put way of uh, helping people understand it, and I've I've yeah. plagiarised that. All right. Well, I'm very pleased you did. I've got another one for you, actually, Martin. You might like this, and this is the definition of an aerosol. And this was another one of Julian's with with a couple of others in in the states. Um, we had to take this one out in the end, but we wanted to say that in actual fact, cows whirling around in a tornado—that's an aerosol. That fits the definitions <laughs> of an aerosol. Cows in a in a tornado, but we had to take that out because the referees didn't like it, and indeed. There were, we wanted it to be a scientific plea, as I say, bridging the academic and, and the infection control community. And, and we didn't want to lose any face by perhaps um, plundering some humour. I think it was beautifully done, actually, because it's nuanced in there, but it wasn't, it didn't spoil the academic tone of the paper. Brett, you've got some questions, I think, also. Yes, and Stephanie, we could talk about this all day, um, and it's been wonderful having you having you uh, for this podcast. Um, I, I guess perhaps maybe I'll try and wrap up with a question and from from my side, which you could I'm sure we could talk about for for days on end too. But a big a big picture question: um, where to now here for infection control? Our textbooks and our teaching have um, dichotomized both droplet and airborne, but also to a lesser extent contact. Uh, and, and, you know, have we, are we, when we think about the world in 10 years, have we completely lost this terminology or are we nuancing the sort of uh, droplet airborne into a different terminology and, and, and approaching risk in a different way based on pathogens? Yeah, yeah. get rid of the droplets please. And as for fomites, I can't tell you how much I detest that word. I'm not even sure I know what a fomite is. Get rid of it. The textbooks are going to be rewritten, Brett. In 10 years' time, you won't recognise the infection control textbooks after this. Well, that's what I hope anyway. But but one of the other hopes I've got is that we put ventilation at the top of the agenda and not just ventilation in healthcare either um, and not just natural versus mechanical. There's all sorts, all sorts of different ways that you can ensure appropriate air changes for your healthcare institutions and indeed in the community, because anywhere indoors, particularly if it's crowded, is going to constitute a risk. And this isn't the last pandemic. So this is the chance now to nail the terminology, get rid of the old fashioned stuff that we've had for over 100 years. And regretfully, the 1934 paper from Wells, Riley, about the size of droplets. This is a, an aerosol. This is a droplet. No, remove it. Rewrite these textbooks. And let's start thinking not about droplet precautions, but about ventilation and protecting healthcare workers and patients from aerosol spread of infectious viruses. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for your time today. It's always um, wonderful to hear your insights and in these types of things. And um, look, the three of us, we all like to talk and uh, we could have, as I said, gone all day, I'm sure, with this topic. On behalf of those listening, uh, Martin and, and myself and Phil Russo, who's also part of the Infection Matters um, podcast team. Thank you so much for your time and giving us some of the insights today. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. It's been lovely chatting to you and you too, Martin. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 